Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. Do you think all this was in, in part because people were so angry for so long? People were very angry for so long. I mean, how long can you live in a closet? It's the beginning of July 1969, and the riots are over. But some of the most important things about the Stonewall Uprising have yet to happen. I want to take you through the year or so of chaos, organizing, protest, and celebration that happened after Stonewall to hear how activists took six nights of unrest in Greenwich Village and built them into a national movement. And we're going to try to trace how the anger that erupted outside the Stonewall Inn was channeled, co-opted, and in some cases, excluded from organizations and events that helped shape the movement for decades to come. How anger fueled power and joy coalesced into pride. I'm Eric Marcus. This is Making Gay History's Stonewall 50 season, and I'm joined by an amazing guide to help us on this part of our journey. Uh, This is Breck Artery. And I am the producer and narrator of a documentary record album called June 28th, 1970, Gay and Proud. The Stonewall Rebellion served notice on the heterosexual majority that a growing number of gays were not afraid anymore and were not content to continue living out their lives in fear and oppression. Breck Artery made the first ever documentary about Stonewall and its aftermath in 1970. He made it in his spare time with a Sony tape recorder, and he released it as a vinyl record, pressing just 400 or so copies. The Stonewall Rebellion will be remembered as one of the major turning points in the homosexual struggle for equality. When I held this record and played it for the first time just a couple of months ago, it gave me chills. The album cover reads, June 28, 1970, Gay and Proud, a living history of the homosexual rights movement. Put it on a turntable, drop the needle, and you'll hear the sound of a revolution. An audio documentary made by a gay person about the year that gay liberation found its voice. June 28, 1970. One of the most important days in the history of the American homosexuals' fight for freedom. Thousands marched in New York City, Chicago, and Los Angeles. They represented the mood of growing militancy in the United States gay community. 
That powerful, revolutionary voice emerged directly from the riots. Before Breck Artery started working on his documentary in the spring of 1970, activists old and new, galvanized by the Stonewall Uprising, were organizing at an unprecedented pace and intensity. Later, we'll bring you more from Breck and his documentary record to tell the story behind the historic marches one year after the riots. But first, we're going to take you back to those first days, weeks, and months of activism after the shit hit the fan. The Stonewall riots had made news, but the coverage in the mainstream press was full of the usual homophobia and bigotry. New York Times, June 28, 1969. Four policemen hurt in village raid. Hundreds of young men went on a rampage in Greenwich Village shortly after 3 a.m. yesterday after a force of plainclothesmen raided a bar that the police said was well known for its homosexual clientele. New York Daily News, July 6, 1969. Homo nest raided. Queen bees Stinging mad. Last weekend, the Queens had turned commandos and stood bra strap to bra strap against an invasion of the tactical police force. With a battle cry of gay power, the Nellies, Femmes, gay boys, Queens, all those who flaunt their homosexuality have been demonstrating that they have indeed been pushed too far. Before the riots ended, the Village Voice published its account of what happened. The Voice was a downtown alternative weekly newspaper, but it was not progressive on gay issues. In fact, the Village Voice's reporting on the riots was particularly barbed. The sudden specter of gay power raised its brazen head and spat out a fairy tale, the likes of which the area has never seen. The forces of faggotry spurred by a Friday night raid on the Stonewall Inn rallied Saturday night in an unprecedented protest. On the first night of the riots, one of the Voice's reporters was on the street. The other was inside the Stonewall, barricaded in with the cops. The account they wrote was published in the middle of the week of riots. Full moon over the stone wall. The sound filtering in doesn't suggest dancing faggots anymore. It sounds like a powerful rage bent on vendetta. The article provoked an angry reaction immediately. Hundreds of young people massed outside the Voices offices, which just happened to be a couple of doors down the street from the Stonewall Inn. Gay youth were joined by members of radical groups like the Black Panthers and the anti-war yippies. Despite the violent protests, Village Voice writers kept up the anti-gay language. Um, and then the next week, the, the Voice was filled with letters saying how the use of the word right. faggot was, was antithemia to everything the Voice stands for and to everything I stand for, blah, blah, blah. Um, there was an amazingly obnoxious article by, I can't even, Henry Troy Spencer or something, I don't know, but some amazing, Walter, Spencer. Walter Troy Spencer, some amazing three-name, you know, um, <laughs> He comes out and says the great faggot revolution and the faggotry and the, the purple finery. You know. Activists like the one you just heard speaking in a recording from 1969 would soon have an answer to the voice's bigotry with more organizations, more protests and their own newspapers with titles like Come Out, Gay and the Queen's Quarterly. The days of gay people tolerating hateful press coverage were over. If Mattachine wants to act straight, they're going to act straight into irrelevancy. At the end of June and in early July 1969, members of the newly formed Mattachine Action Committee were in the streets handing out flyers for a meeting scheduled for July 9th. But there was some homophile business to attend to in Philadelphia first. The last of the annual Reminder Day protests on July 4th at Independence Hall. In episode one, you heard how the rift between one generation of activists and the next was breaking out into the open. 
While Craig Rodwell was calling Frank Kameny anti-Tom and young activists were defiantly holding hands, Morty Manford, fresh from witnessing the Stonewall riots, was struggling with his identity when he headed to Philadelphia that Friday. Where did I go? I went with a friend from New York, uh, from the Stonewall. I think I wore sunglasses. Uh, to hide your identity? Yes, and when I saw cameras, I think I turned my face away. I mean, it was a process of starting to uh, deal with it a, a little bit at a time. Morty Manford was still processing. He hadn't come into his own as an activist yet, but Martha Shelley was ramping up. Before the riots, she'd been the president of the lesbian homophile organization, the Daughters of Belitis, and she went to the July 4th Reminder Day protest too, dutifully decked out awkwardly in a skirt and blouse. But Martha was mulling the idea of something more militant than a picket. She and the other members of the Mattachine Action Committee wanted a march, and they got one. On Sunday, July 27, 1969, just a month after the riots, hundreds of people gathered in Greenwich Village to demand an end to discrimination and police harassment. It was the biggest gay rights march to date. So we marched around the village and we ended up at Sheridan Square across the street from the Stonewall Inn. How many were there of you? I thought there were only 500. Some people said that there was more. I've heard it as much as 2,000. Mm -hmm. And I remember us jumping up on this little water fountain and making our speeches. And then afterwards I said, well, we should disperse and go home because there's going to be more. Keep your ears open. There'll be more meetings. And this ain't the end of us. She was right. It wasn't the end of them. Tonight our program deals with the radical homosexual organizations the Gay Liberation Front is the name for a radical, militant, homosexual organization which formed soon after the um, Stonewall riots. This is New York Community Station WBAI's radio show for and about the gay community called The New Symposium. Michael Brown could tell us, how did you elect again? <laughs> Host Charles Pitts and Pete Wilson taped this broadcast in an apartment with a group of GLF members in early September 1969. It, it arose out of uh, the Mattachine Action Committee shortly after the Stonewall riot. And uh, there were a number of people who felt that there was a need for an organization which was more closely <coughs> tied with the community than Mattachine. And uh, there was a uh, division of feeling with the Mattachine Society. and. We left, and then... Marty Robinson thinks I came up with the name Gay Liberation Front. I don't know who said it. I remember it coming up at the meeting, and I remember pounding my fist in the table, yelling in exultation, that's it, that's it, we're the Gay Liberation Front. <laughs> Why? What was it about that name that did it for you? Because it was like the National Liberation Front of North Vietnam. What was that? That was the Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. The... Um, army of liberation that was heroic in the eyes of the left. Here were all of these Vietnamese peasants daring to stand up to the most powerful army in the world with all of its tanks and helicopters and napalm. We pinned all of our fantasies on that group without understanding anything about their culture. The one thing we did get right is that they were fighting against a very oppressive force that was trying to deny them the right to run their own country their way. And it was David against Goliath. Martha Shelley was one of the co-founders of the GLF, 
although founder is a tricky word to attach to the Gay Liberation Front, which was a strictly non-hierarchical and consensus-led group. GLF members were often active in other movements, fighting for racial justice, socialist causes, and women's liberation. Like what I learned at Women's Lib yesterday at that demonstration, what I've been feeling in my own life, the more I affirm myself, you know, the more I am myself in the mm. world, and the more we like relate to each other and do our thing, the more we're going to be able to do, do what's natural to us and feel good about it and let the weight of the hang-up fall on those who are distressed. Right. Like I can look at right. a woman now and say, I'm homosexual, you know, and smile and feel good about it and watch her whole thing like collapse and, you know, go crazy, right. you know, right. and I don't have, like, in all my life, I've borne the weight of others' hang-ups. Right. I've, right. I've internalized it myself. Right. I don't have to do That's that. Right. We're not sure which GLF member that was speaking in September 1969, but we do know that over the summer of 1969, the newly formed GLF had got together with the Alternate U and found a home. The Alternate University, or AU, was a group and it was a place, a buzzing center of counterculture and political organizing in a big industrial loft on the corner of 6th Avenue and 14th Street at the edge of the village. Martha Shelley could still picture it vividly when I asked her about it 20 years later in 1989. Some of the graffiti on the wall, uh, and God said E equals MC squared, and there was a light show, groovy. <laughs> that kind of graffiti. <laughs> Ancient language. Yeah. yeah. And we had dances there, and they were massive. I mean, these play, these dances were jammed. Dozens of people, hundreds of people. Hundreds. I remember serving on security one night and being up most of the night because we'd had threats. The mafia. I think the mafia didn't. I mean, the mafia never really did anything, but there were people who didn't like us having dances where we sold beers for fifty cents and sodas for a quarter when they were busy flogging beers for a couple of bucks in their damn bars and you could dance all night. You didn't have to pay extra to go into a special room where dancing was allowed, which is the way it was in some of the old bars like the Sea Colony. I think the dances were really important because we were expressing ourselves physically, we were expressing our affection for each other and our sense of community in those dances, which you couldn't do in gay bars. Also, there was this tremendous emphasis on the gay bars on looks, and I'm sure there still is, but at least in the gay liberation dances, there was this consciousness of we are here to give each other love and acceptance and who we are is okay. And there were circle dances. You never saw that in a gay bar. Instead of two people against the world, it was our whole community. A few minutes walk from Alternate U at Craig Rodwell's apartment at 350 Bleecker Street, plans were afoot for more marches. We sat here, Ellen, Linda, Fred, and myself. This is before the Urco conference. A quick translation. Fred was Fred Sargent, Craig's lover. Ellen Broidy and Linda Rhodes were lesbian student activists, and they were a couple too. Urko was, and are you ready for a sexy name? The Eastern Regional Council of Homophile Organizations, which was behind the Reminder Day pickets. And we did up a formal resolution and everything to uh, change the end reminders to Christopher Street Liberation Day to celebrate last Sunday in June to commemorate the birth of the gay liberation movement as exemplified in Stonewall riots. We sent it for hours and worked the whole thing up with resolutions. And we presented it to ERCO in November of 69. It was Ellen Broidy who stood up at the ERCO conference in Philadelphia in November and proposed the resolution for a new annual march. 
Ellen says she wanted to take the fight for gay rights to the next level. I never would have stood up in Philadelphia at the Eastern Regional Conference and said, get rid of this march around Independence Hall if I had thought it was anything other than a very conservative plea for acceptance. And I had no patience with that. We wanted to smash the state. The motion to establish the march was passed by everyone except Dick Leitch's Mattachine. Martha Shelley had a theory about why some of the old guard were not big fans of the new radicalism. People would send in their money to DOB and Mattachine and hope that one person would be the leader and go out there and represent them while they hid in the closet and somebody else would fight for their rights. But once we were all out on the streets fighting for our rights, we wouldn't need Dick Leitch anymore, or me, or anybody else who was the public spokesperson. You didn't really care, though, about your position. No. You didn't want to be president. No, I just wanted to make the world safe for me. That's it. Mm -hmm. So I could live in my little, as it turned out, house without a white picket fence and enjoy my life and not feel that, you know, I was going to get thrown in jail for sleeping with a woman. (laughs) I mean, I would have also liked to overturn the world, bring peace, justice, and prosperity to every human being on the planet. And I think that was still a fine idea. But I didn't have any desire to run the world Mm -hmm. or be boss, and I still don't. (laughs) Without the support of the Manishing Society, and in fact, not affiliated with any specific group, the newly formed Christopher Street Liberation Day Committee held its first meeting in January of 1970. Actually, the first meeting of the committee, it was like two-thirds women. And actually, the first few meetings, the concept of the thing changed at every meeting. Because like the people, the, the meetings were different every meeting. And each group would have a different idea of what it should be and how it should be you know, set up. And finally, we settled on the format that that took place. And the idea, in a nutshell, is to set aside the day for a show of unity, solidarity, and pride, collective pride, of gay people. And not to have it appear that it's run, or actually be run, by one organization. And the number of organizations was multiplying. In late December of 1969, Activists frustrated with the GLF's non-structure and its alliances with other, not explicitly gay causes, split off to form the Gay Activist Alliance, a single-issue group that counted Marty Robinson among its early members. GA is utilizing non-violent militancy to uh, secure what it wants, somewhat by hitting the system uh, below the belt rather than just trying to cut the rug out from under the system entirely. Sylvia Rivera was also an early member of GAA. This is the first ever recorded interview with Sylvia, taped in December 1970. Sylvia's talking about how she joined the Gay Activist Alliance in February or March of that year, and about how she faced discrimination from the get-go. I made a phone call from Joseph. I said, do you accept transvestites? At that time, I was still using the word drag queen. I said, do you accept drag queens? Sure, come on down. So my friends and I took down there to the meeting from Joseph. We took a peek. He was nothing but butch male homosexuals that always oppressed transvestites. And we were very flamboyant with the makeup and everything. You know, typical, you know, really looking beautiful. So we walked in and I come, what's your name? At the table, you had to write your name. I said, my name is Sylvia. He says, what is your name? I said, I'm Sylvia. He says, well, we can't accept that name. 
So I wrote that Sylvia Lee Rivera, and in parentheses, I have the habit of putting Ray Rivera, my real name. Even butch identify, uh, even men, you know, homosexual males that are dealing with their sexism are always discriminating against transvestites because, like, they just can't. That we're threatening their masculinity. This is the way they feel. Within a month of joining GAA, Sylvia was arrested for petitioning for gay rights in Times Square. The cops said she was soliciting for sex. Sylvia had been harassed by the police and arrested scores of times in Times Square. This was the first time she'd been arrested for exercising her civil right to protest. Of course, conditions for gay people have not changed much for the better in the past year, and police raids such as the one that triggered the Stonewall Uprising have continued, most notably at the Snake Pit, another village bar. Bob Kohler of New York's Gay Liberation Front says he thinks a repetition of the Stonewall riots is possible. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it could happen again. I mean, the uh, the people, Stonewall was a dope drop. I mean, I think people making a, um, you know, it, Stonewall's become sort of a legend. The kids have become folk heroes, which really isn't true. But uh, something like the Snake Pit, you've got, uh, they're tinderboxes. And I, I think, yeah, it could happen again. I would hope not, but I think it could. It's not like the police raids magically came to an end after the Stonewall riots. They continued. In the pre-dawn hours of March 8, 1970, the cops raided an after-hours gay bar in a basement just a stone's throw from the Stonewall called the Snake Pit. It was a radicalizing moment for many, including Vito Russo. Among the customers arrested was an Argentinian national, and Diego Vinales was here on a visa. And he was afraid that if it came out that he was gay, he would be deported. And he jumped from the second floor of the police station window on 10th Street to try to escape and landed on a spike fence. And they had to bring acetylene torches to cut him off. And he was brought to St. Vincent's Hospital in critical condition, at the edge of death for like three days. He eventually lived, by the way, and went back to Argentina. I was on my way home from work and I passed St. Vincent's there was a candlelight vigil, and I remember being handed a leaflet. And the leaflet said, no matter how you look at it, Diego Vinales was pushed. And that's when I put two and two together, that in fact, he was pushed from that window. He was pushed by society. That if he didn't have to be so scared of being deported, he wouldn't have jumped. And so for the first time, the organized response reached me on a gut level. And that was the following Thursday when I went to my first Gay Activist Alliance meeting. The GAA had leafleted and organized protests within hours of the raid, including the vigil that Vito mentioned, and a march that swept up Morty Manford. I um, was sitting with some friends having a sandwich or something at Mama's Chicken Rib, a popular gay coffee shop on Greenwich Avenue, and uh, this demonstration went by hundreds of people with protest signs and chanting and obviously a gay demonstration, and uh, said to my friends at the table, let's join it. Nobody wanted to join it. I said, well, I'll see you later. I wasn't going to let the parade go by. That parade and the vigil have been called the very first zap. Marty Robinson is generally credited with coming up with ZAPs, which were rapid response, direct action protests. They became a signature of the GAA. The Gay Activist Alliance has begun to confront politicians openly on the streets. 
They attempted to ask questions of Arthur Goldberg, the Democratic candidate for governor, during a campaign stop at 86th Street and Broadway in Manhattan. When Goldberg refused to respond to the gay people's questions, they proceeded to shout him down and drive him away. The demonstrators surrounded his car and protested his silence. Crime of silence! Crime of silence! Crime of silence! Crime of silence! You're a pig too, mister. You're a pig too, you know it. You're a pig too. You're a fucking Nazi, baby. There were further confrontations between the gay people and straight bystanders on the street after Goldberg had left the scene. I was talking to Mr. Blumenthal well, before I've this happened. I've been talking for five years, God damn it! I don't care how long you've been talking. State Assemblyman Al Blumenthal stayed on the scene for over half an hour, attempting to assure gays that Goldberg was really on their side. Blumenthal promised to work for a change in New York State's discrimination law to ensure equal protection for homosexuals. But we're not going to, we're not going to change society overnight, and we're not going to change the police overnight, but we are making efforts to change the law, and I think we're going to succeed. After the incident was over, Jim Owls, president of the Gay Activist Alliance, was asked what he felt the confrontation had accomplished. Well, I think uh, we showed Arthur Goldberg that uh, whenever he makes uh, an appearance in the city, he has to be willing to speak to his homosexual constituents. He said that uh, he didn't think it was an important enough issue, but obviously if he went into a black neighborhood, he would speak to the black problems or he would have gotten the same reaction. So uh, we're just going to let him know that wherever he appears, he's going to expect the same type of thing. Protests, newspapers, and organizations were popping up everywhere. And as spring turned to summer, preparations for events to commemorate the Stonewall Uprising went into full swing. Craig Rodwell and the other members of the Christopher Street Liberation Day Committee had been in planning mode for several months. Craig's business, the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, was a nerve center for organizing the march. As a side note, Craig had opened his store in a tiny space on Mercer Street in late 1967. It was America's first ever gay bookstore. Anyway, back to the Pride March organizers. They applied for a permit. It was rejected. But the very next day, they were called to a meeting at the NYPD's 3rd Division headquarters. Craig recalled the meeting. And I warn you, Craig uses some very outdated language here. He was speaking in December of 1970. And we walked into this room upstairs, and all this brass sitting there, lieutenants and inspectors and sergeants and everything. We were informed that a representative of the mayor's office was there, and the, the mayor wanted to report back from the meeting as soon as it was finished. And we still to this day don't know exactly what happened, uh, whether the mayor found out that they denied our permit. But the whole meeting was to go over the route. They had the head of all the precincts there that we were going through. The, mm -hmm head of the Parks Department. The inspector was there who was in charge of the raid on the Stonewall, Pine. He just sat there and glared at us in the whole meeting. Spooky was the only word for it. He didn't say a word, just like that, the whole meeting. And they had a few questions, and the only thing we were concerned with was that, and we felt we should inform the police that there would be female impersonators there, and how would they handle it? And we asked them to, realize that this was one day and this was the gay community and they were part of the community and we felt they had a right 
to exist, and if it chose to work both of the opposite sex, and at the same time we realized there was a law against it. However, there are thousands of laws in this city that you do not enforce every day. And we are asking you in the name of uh, human decency, for one thing, respect for other people, and also a desire for a peaceful day and a peaceful march, not to enforce that law on that day. And their reply was they, of course, couldn't tell us that they wouldn't enforce it. So we didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Gay liberation was breaking new ground with never-before-seen large-scale public protests by LGBTQ people and the largest ever demonstration by LGBTQ people in the United States was about to take place. Fifty years ago, Breck Artery was living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he was news director at a local radio station. On a Monday morning at work, he read a small item in the New York Times about, quote, disorder outside the Stonewall Inn. Breck knew what he wanted to do next. I moved to New York City in the fall of 1969. It became clear to me that the Stonewall riots had spawned a new gay movement. I thought it would be worthwhile to make an audio documentary on what was going on. I was going to school and I was working part-time and so I I did it when I could. I just uh, went out and interviewed as many people as I can to find out what was going on with the gay movement and how the whole landscape had changed. Thanks to Breck Artery and his tape recorder, we can now tell you the story of the first Pride March on Saturday, June 27th, 1970, in Chicago. Mike Barta of Chicago Gay Liberation welcomed the crowd this way. I want to welcome everybody here on behalf of Chicago Gay Liberation on this celebration day, part of Gay Pride Week. We're here because we're gay and we're proud that we are. In Chicago, as across the country, the gay movement has brought out many people who are new to marches and demonstrations. One of them put it this way. I've never gone on a march before, and I'll be damned if I've ever been in a movement before. But all of a sudden, something that touched the corner of my life and its inner core began to have some kind of meaning. And I had to say that I've got to be out here no matter what. When the Chicago marchers reached their destination at the downtown Civic Center, there were more speeches. Bill Dry said gays could be in the vanguard of those working to change American society. We don't have to listen to all the rhetoric that explains what's wrong with this sexist, racist society. We know. Because we're gay, we can be the leaders in the revolution that is going to make this society a better place to live. Gay power! Saturday also saw a small march in San Francisco. 20 to 30 people marched up Polk Street. After the Chicago and San Francisco marches, on the morning of Sunday, June 28, 1970, Breck Artery got up, got dressed, and left his apartment in the West Village. Uh, I think I was wearing jeans and a t-shirt and a jacket, and the reason I had a jacket on was to carry extra audio cassettes because I was recording interviews and natural sound along the way. And uh, it was a pretty warm day. It was late June, and uh, the jacket was making me kind of hot, but I needed that uh, to carry my equipment. I went out to the assembly area about two to three hours before the march was scheduled to begin. 
and it looked pretty disappointing. Uh, there were very few people around. But as the time for the march to begin came closer, the crowd began to build. People began to gather in the parade assembly area on West Washington Place, just a few blocks away from Christopher Street, where angry mobs of gay people had rioted just one year before. The mood today was different. The sun was shining, people were laughing, meeting old friends and making new ones. The straight press was there, with most of the reporters and many perplexed straights trying to make some sense out of what was going on. But for the most part, they were ignored, as the gay marchers were caught up in their newfound spirit of pride and assertion. It was a time, a place, and an atmosphere for homosexuals to be together as one united group as they had never been before. Thousands of gay brothers and sisters were holding hands, chanting, singing, and expressing their love for one another. They were asserting the common bond which holds all homosexuals in America together, a bond which few heterosexuals could ever understand. As the crowd began to build in the assembly area, Kay Tobin, a reporter for the newspaper Gay, was asked how she felt. Looks very good. It's very dispersed right now, but I think when it's all pulled together, it'll be very, very strong, very good. And it's, we still have an hour to go, after all. What about the turnout of women so far? Does it look well, I think, good? Yeah, I think it's very good. Yeah, very good. Exactly one hour later, the march began to move. Out of West Washington Place, onto the Avenue of the Americas, or Sixth Avenue as native New Yorkers refer to it. For the most part, the demonstrators were cheered as they walked through the village, as the marchers passed the Women's House of Detention at Greenwich and Sixth Avenues, a chant of free our sisters, free ourselves, welled up. Free our sisters, free ourselves, free our sisters, free ourselves. The march, which had grown 15 blocks long, moved toward 14th Street, past alternate university. The clenched fist salute was raised to the windows of the school, and the straights inside the building returned the greeting. The march continued north past 42nd Street, which for years has been one of the most repressive and degrading streets in the U.S. homosexual experience. Hundreds of different signs were carried aloft during the march, such as gay power, this is our country too, we are the people our parents warned us against, or simply gay pride. As the marchers wended their way through Central Park toward Sheep Meadow, the old civil rights song, We Shall Overcome, was heard. As the demonstrators arrived in Sheep Meadow, spontaneous applause and cheering erupted as the group at the front of the march stopped, turned around and saw the streaming masses crowding up behind them. Further than the eye could see, thousands upon thousands of gay people poured into Sheep Meadow from the march route. The feeling was pervasive. It seemed as if everyone there knew that something of major importance had just happened to them that there could be no turning back to the old days of hiding, degradation, and denial of their basic humanity. Well, this is tremendous. It's really great. There's been nothing like this before, and I hope it sets a tone and a trend for the whole future. It's beautiful. Just beautiful. It's just absolutely incredible. I don't think the impact will mean anything to me until two days later. Oh, it's fantastic. I feel better. Brothers and sisters, man, this is really where it's at. It was so beautiful. I was in the middle of the march. 
I couldn't see the front because it was too far ahead of me, and I couldn't see the back. It was, I couldn't believe it. It was just fantastic. It was beautiful. Beautiful. I'm just uh, the happiest day so far of my life. That's what we needed for a long time. It's marvelous. Fantastic. It really is. I feel very liberated because of this. There must be 15, 20,000 people here today. It's nobody expected it to turn out like this. This is the best thing that's happened to the gay movement. There were many people in Sheep Meadow that day, and as the straight world is learning, they were as varied as any other large group of people. There were rich and there were poor, militant and reserved, young and old. Some had waited many years for this day. Jack Nichols tells of one. Prescott Townsend was there from Boston. He's a very elderly gentleman, almost 80 years old. He'd come down to march the whole march all the way up. And he has a bad hip, too. I happen to know that. He was one of the first people in this country to start with homosexual civil liberties, once chained himself to the Massachusetts state legislature. And old Prescott was there carrying a sign that said gay pride. Nichols went on to give his personal reaction to this day. We stood at the top of the hill in Sheep's Meadow and watched thousands upon thousands of people come up the hillside and my eyes filled up with tears while I watched all of these people cheering, very happy, healthy looking crowds. It was a great experience. It's been said that homosexuals will never win respect and acceptance from straight people until they respect and accept themselves. This they're beginning to do. The road to freedom is always a long and painful one, but on June 28th of 1970, the American homosexual took the most important step toward his freedom, the liberation of his own mind. As one participant said to me, a new spirit of regained humanity is awakening in homosexuals all over the world, and it won't stop until all of us, all of the millions of gay people, can stand in the sun and be free, as we were for a few hours today. What Stonewall sparked, the activism of the following year stoked. The number of organizations nationwide rose from 50 to 60 groups before the uprising to more than 1,500 a year later, and 2,500 within two years. Next episode, we're heading to the Stonewall Inn for a live show recorded in front of some of you, our amazing listeners, and featuring an intergenerational conversation between activists reflecting on Stonewall's legacy and we'll dive into the historical context with a leading LGBTQ archivist. I'd like to say a very big thank you to Breck Artery for recording the voices of the marches 49 years ago and for so generously sharing them with us. Thank you, Breck. Many thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible. Executive producer Sarah Birmingham, producer Josh Gwynn, assistant producer Mo Laborde, administrative and special projects manager Inga Dataya, scoring, mixing, and sound design by Ray Kantrowitz, photo editor Michael Green, and our social media team, Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Denio Lorenko. Thanks also to our intrepid researchers, Brian Faree and Brian DeShazer. Special thanks to Jenna Weiss-Berman. Additional score and our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Thanks to the National Park Service's Stonewall Oral History Project, in partnership with the LGBT Community Center and the Lower East Side Tenement Museum for the clip of Ellen Broidy that you just heard courtesy of the LGBT Community Center National History Archive. That 1970 audio you heard of Sylvia Rivera was recorded by Liza Cowan. At the time, Liza was a producer at WBAI Radio, later editor and publisher of Dyke, a quarterly. And these days, she's an artist and graphic designer whose work can be found at 
www.smallequals.com. And thanks to Steve Holt and Margie Smith of Get Me Rewrite for their help recreating those hateful newspaper headlines. Making a History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division, the One Archives of the USC Libraries, and the Pacifica Radio Archive. Season five of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Calamus Foundation, Irwin and Andrew Press, and our listeners, including Matilda Brooker. Thanks, Matilda. Thanks, Matilda. Stay in touch with Making Gay History by signing up for our newsletter at makinggayhistory.com, by finding us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or by emailing us at hello at makinggayhistory.com. We love your letters. Head to our website to find previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature. So long, until next time.